welcome to the Naturally Lit Podcast. I am Amani McLaurin, and we have Dr. Obioha with us today. Hi, Dr. Obioha. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. You know, I was watching uh, some of the videos on your Instagram, and you look like you are the hair care edge whisperer you know growing edges back (laughs) by the dozen over there in LA (laughs) that is my goal definitely well you're definitely doing it and um you know edges is a big conversation in hair care you know everyone's trying to protect the edges nowadays so I had to get you on the podcast to to share some of your um knowledge with with the folks So let's go ahead and get started. So this is all about you. So let's start off with just why dermatology? You know, you know, what do you do today? But how did you get started in this field? So uh, the reason I chose dermatology is because I had a lot of exposure with dermatology growing up personally. Um, So I had bad acne. I loved my dermatologist. She ended up being my mentor in medical school. Mm-hmm. So in medical school, I would shadow her and spend a lot of time with her. And personally, I have a very short retention span. I get very bored very easily. So dermatology appeals to um, people like that because it's so diverse. You can do medical dermatology. You can do inpatient dermatology. There's a lot of procedures. You can do surgery. Um, Your patients are from all ages, all backgrounds. You get to build a relationship and kind of follow them over time. So that was really important to me as well. Okay. And so what can you actually share with us? What is dermatology? You know, we, you know, you brought up acne and so we can put skincare in there, but what all does dermatology cover? So dermatology covers hair, skin, and nails. Hmm. Okay. So a lot of people just think it's skin, but we do hair and then we also do nails as well. Okay. And so I hope I don't say this title incorrectly, but you know, there's a dermatologist and then I also hear of the esthetician or what are the the similarities there? What are the differences, if any, um, in the two roles? Um, so basically it's based on training. So for dermatology, you go to medical school, um, you do a one year of internal medicine and then three years of residency. And if you were to pursue a fellowship after that, that would be your path, um, for aestheticians that don't go to medical school. So it's different in training and background. Mm, Okay. So you have, so basically a dermatologist may have a little bit more experience and hands-on experience. Um, so can you share with us, how was your, <laughs> your, your years in medical school and, and did you do a fellowship and, and things of that nature? My years in medical school were good. Um, no, I didn't do a fellowship. So for dermatology, the fellowships available are Mohs surgery, so basically skin cancer surgery. Uh, pediatrics, so where you deal with just kids, um, as well as dermatopathology, where you're reading slides because we do a lot of biopsies, and then cosmetic dermatology. Okay. So, so after residency, <laughs> I went straight into practice. Dr. Obioha, you are the first person to tell me that medical school was good. <laughs> so when you say good, like a good experience, because <laughs> typically I see people rocking back and forth in the corner when we talk about medical school. So <laughs> I will be honest with you and tell you that my first year of dermatology residency was definitely harder than medical school. Hmm, Um, And maybe that's because I, the medical school I went to, I went to UCLA. It was very self-directed learning. They were very, very, very accommodating, motivational. It wasn't cutthroat at all. Um, Versus my first year of residency with dermatology, it's a lot, a lot of information that you have to learn. It's a little overwhelming. I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, But, I mean, it was a great experience all around. Okay. Well, I'm happy to hear that because I don't always hear the um the good stories of medical school. Uh, so <laughs> thank you for setting the record straight and, and sharing your your experience um, 
you know, in, in medical school. And of course, you know, I don't know exactly when you graduated, but congrats, because that's not easy. Um, so I'm happy to see you're doing your thing. And and just for everyone to know right now, where are you currently uh, based? Are you in an office? Do you have your own uh, practice? Can you just share a little information on that? Of course. So um, I am in a group practice in Beverly Hills. Uh, there are seven dermatologists that I work with, uh, two PAs and one nurse practitioner. Okay, great. So let's go ahead and get started into some of this educational work. Um, so my first question to you regarding uh, hair care is, you know, what causes hair to have texture? You know, kinks, coils, curls, what is that? What is, how do we differentiate and how do we have that texture? So, for example, in curly hair and Afro-ethnic texture hair, it's based on the shape of the hair follicle. So the cross-section in African-American hair is elliptical or oval, and it has a curved hair bulb, versus in straight hair, it's not elliptical and it's straight. Okay, and is there any reasoning behind why that's the case? Is it... Is it just it's evolution? Just genetic. Genetics. Okay. It's evolutionary. So it's thought it was thought to be protective. Um, so that's why in African Americans they've kind of adopted and selected for that. But with that said, because of the curvature of the hair follicle, it actually makes African American and African texture hair more prone to breakage. Hmm. And, and that's something that we're all aware of, or let me not say all, but uh, you, you'll constantly hear on, you know, YouTube is people saying, uh, you know, our hair is very delicate. It's very, especially the kinkier it gets. Um, you know, is, is that true from a, a scientific perspective that the, the kinkier the hair texture, the more delicate it is? Yeah, that's true because of the oval cross section, it's more susceptible to breakage. Versus if it's straight, it has lower resistance and less resistance to breakage. Okay. And um, just for anyone on the call, can you uh, give more information or define what the hair follicle is and where it's located? uh, So people who may not be aware of what the hair follicle is can have an idea. So hair follicles exist all over the body. Um, They are attached to a sebaceous gland. And they have an area of the bulb where the stem cells of the hair follicle exist. Hmm. And so that actually makes me wonder, is there a reason why, uh, like, for instance, I have a curly hair texture, but, you know, on my eyebrows, my the hair on my eyebrows is straight. Is there a reason why there's a differentiation between the texture of our hair, um, like on our heads versus our eyelashes, our uh, eyebrows and you know, other parts of our body? Essentially, it's variation based on anatomic location. Mm-hmm. So for the scalp, based on the cross-section, it could be anywhere from curved or straight versus uniformly, usually the eyebrow hair, hair on the rest of the body is usually straight. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that's interesting. So, Typically on our hair, I mean, I'm sorry, on our head, those hair follicles will have the um, different sizes of oval and and things of that nature that provide texture. But the rest of our body, although it may depend, typically it's a straighter hair texture. Okay. Correct. Um, When it comes to chemical manipulation, um, does that have a let's say, a, a negative <laughs> uh, impact on our hair from a scientific perspective, especially textured hair? So by definition, chemical relaxers are breaking the bonds to alter the amino acid composition. So basically in curly hair, they're breaking the bonds so that it's straight. By definition, that makes the hair more fragile. And it's one of the major hair care practices that can lead to breakage. Okay, so why, you you know, with this in mind, it always makes me wonder if scientifically, you know, this is 
proven to us to have a negative impact on our hair? Do you know, although this may be a subjective question, uh, why is this still practiced today? And, and why are we still allowing chemical manipulation to take place, um, you know, in the beauty industry? Uh, do, do you have any opinions on that at all? So I think personally, I think it's all about convenience, right? So Mm -hmm. I think in African-American women, a large part of your daily living is consumed by hair, whether it's getting your hair done, whether it's, you know, buying hair care products, styling your hair. Um, So, of course, by breaking the bonds and making your hair straight, it's more manageable. Um, What's awesome is that in the most recent years, there's been such a push for the natural hair movement in moving away from chemicals, but traditionally, and even, you know, professionally, um, there is this notion that straight hair looks better. And of course, it's more manageable. Right. So, you know, I I see a lot of women give stories that the long-term use of chemical manipulation or utilizing relaxers on their hair does have a very damaging impact, um, you know, with certain They'll start to have certain conditions such as alopecia or, uh, you know, they'll lose their edges in certain cases. Uh, Is that correlated with the relaxers or are there other uh, things in play there? So with breaking the bonds of the hair, making it more fragile, for example, if you have your hair relaxed, they have shown scientifically that. With traction alopecia, when you braid your hair or weave your hair while your hair is relaxed, you'll have more breakage versus when your hair is natural. That's because you're pulling on already stressed, fragile hair versus if it was in its natural state. Um, And then as far as relaxers, if they're left on too long, there's so many different variations with the relaxers, um, Mm -hmm. protective ointments, and the way that it's applied, that there's a ton of variations. So that can definitely contribute to hair loss in the long term. But there are patients that do very well with relaxers and don't have any symptoms and don't have any hair loss. So the rule doesn't really apply to everyone. Mm-hmm. But if you are having symptoms, um, definitely that's the time where I step in and do some counseling and recommend, you know, maybe you need to change that style or definitely I would not advise doing relaxers on top of another hairstyle, meaning getting a braids and weaves immediately after relaxing. Okay, so we've opened the door of weaves and braids. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and I can't even speak against weaves because, you know, the idea of adding hair or um, wigs for that nature is is a historical practice, especially within uh, our community, you know, kings and queens in Egypt where we're rocking the wigs and adding hair. You know, that was a sign of royalty. So I can't downplay the idea of wearing weaves and wigs because it's it has a historical ancestral um, relevance to it. However, the way that they're applied today, uh, in your opinion, or even as a uh, dermatologist, are there things that we need to change? Are there things that we're doing right? What, what is your take on on weaves today? It's hard because, I mean, weaves are considered protective. Protective Mm -hmm. meaning that when your hair is in a weave, you're not applying any heat and you're not manipulating your hair. However, a lot of weaves are pulling. They're very tight. So in order for your hair, for your weave to look like it's growing out of your scalp, it has to be laid flat And typically, it tends to pull on the hairline, which, again, is a very susceptible part of the hair follicle. And so there's a lot of controversy. But typically, what I say is nowadays, unfortunately, weaving is starting at an earlier and earlier age. And no one is. And it's really hard to take breaks in between. So if you're doing it where you're doing it a couple times a year, you're not keeping in for a long time, you're taking breaks. That is a way to have a weave healthily, but I feel like in my experience and a lot of patients I see, there becomes this ritual where you get a weave, take it out, and you put it in that same day, or maybe even you wait a week. 
and that's been going on for decades. Your hair needs to relax. So weaves are okay in certain circumstances when they're done properly and mm-hmm. when you give your own hair time to relax. But oftentimes, a lot of people don't. And that makes perfect sense, the idea of giving your hair a break. And and like you said, a, a weave is a, a protective style in its own way. And, and we do sometimes utilize it as the style uh, or our everyday style. So, you know, wh- you, you put some some items saying, you know, we should wait a couple of months or, you know, do it however many times throughout the year. Uh, do you have any best practices like wait every five months um, or, you know, take a break with a weave for a month or two months? Is there any, you know, tips that you can provide to our uh, weave wearers <laughs> out there? <laughs> Yes. So I would recommend not leaving it in for longer than eight weeks and taking at least a six week break. Um, And then general practice, if you have a headache when you're getting your weave done, it's too tight. If you have any small bumps when you're getting your hair done and it's definitely too tight. So signs like that where you're aware of what is supposed to be what it's supposed to feel like is really, really important. Communicating with your hairstylist and letting her know, oh, I have a headache that's a little too tight for me mm-hmm. is very, very important. So is it... If you actually, have any... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to say? Oh, no, I was, oh, I was just going to say, if you take out your weave and you have a lot of thinning and you notice your, your hairline is thinning, then you need to just reassess mm-hmm. and basically take a break. Okay. No, that makes perfect sense. And... While you were speaking, it came to me. I was wondering, is it the braids that we're putting in that are too tight? Or is it, see, myself, I've never had a full weave. So even the idea of a weave is new to me. Um, so mm-hmm. is it the braids that are causing uh, a lot of the traction and issues? Or is it the actual weaving of the hair that, that causes the it's issues? The, it's, it's the weight of the added hair. So if your hair is being cornrowed before the weave hair is being applied, that's a lot of weight on your hair. Mm. As you can imagine, I mean, I've had a ton of weave. So, you know, when you take out your weave, you feel like you lost five pounds because you just had all that weight (laughs) of the hair on your hair. Um, So it's the weight of the hair and then it's basically how tight it is. Okay. So, you know, some people are not happy to hear eight weeks after putting, (laughs) what, a thousand (laughs) dollars Words of hair care on their head. You know, people will try to keep that in for three to five months <laughs> without yeah. a new one. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, is this common, uh, you know, for some of the hair conditions that you're seeing? Do you for the people that come into your office? Is it typically, uh, you know, they they're losing their hair or their edges due to weaves or are there any other conditions? Um, or I'm sorry, or. uh causes of conditions that that you see coming in into your office constantly so to speak to weaves and braids and pulling that is all under the category of traction alopecia so alopecia by definition means hair loss Mm -hmm. it doesn't categorize into a different type of hair loss but traction alopecia alopecia specifically is when you lose hair, typically along the hairline, from chronic pulling. And this typically is what I was saying. You have an increased rate of traction with chemically relaxed hair. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, it doesn't even have to be weaved. And kids that have little ponytails with their hair pulled back and grease and they're very smooth, you can get traction from that. So traction can start at a very early age from any type of pulling hairstyle. Oh, wow. And and that's a common hairstyle for, for young girls and even young boys, too, putting it into the tight ponytails to hopefully last for a week or so. So Exactly. That is interesting. So, you know, it doesn't or, or hair loss doesn't only come from. Uh, the weaves and the tight braids. It also can just come from tight ponytails. That's that's something I don't think a lot of people know. Yeah, exactly. And then, I mean, there's other conditions. There's a, uh, the most common cause of permanent hair loss in African-American women is a condition called CCCA, which is 
an acronym that stands for central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia, which is a mouthful. Right. Um, but, (laughs) (laughs) but basically this condition causes hair loss on the top of the scalp. It traditionally was called hot comb alopecia and thought Mm. to be due to hair care practices. However, the role of hair care practices is very, very conflicting. Um, so there's actually recent data to suggest an increased incidence in diabetes and hyperlipidemia, so elevated cholesterol. Um, and then recent studies have shown basically in this condition, they found an upregulation of genes that are considered fibroproliferative. So other fibroproliferative conditions that we see commonly in African Americans are keloids and uterine fibroids. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a recent study showing that uterine fibroids are nearly five times more common in women with CCCA, this hair loss condition. So it's not all about hair. There is some genetic susceptibility and other environmental variations that also play a role. It's not completely clear, though. Right. Yeah. So it's no, I, I definitely understand there's certain uh, medical and health conditions that can also impact uh, hair loss. Yeah. Okay. So we've gone over the common conditions. Uh, You know, a lot of people may think it is how we style our hair or as we've been speaking on, you know, the tight braids, the weaves, the the tight ponytails. But are there things such as your diet, um, exercise, do those factors impact our hair and, and even potentially can cause hair loss down the road? Yeah, 100%. So different diet, nutritional deficiencies can contribute to hair loss. So, for example, iron deficiency anemia. A lot of menstruating women are low in iron, so that can definitely play a role. Um, Being low in vitamin D can definitely play a role. Other dietary factors can definitely play a role. So it's, it's diet, it's how you take care of your hair. What, you're, what manipulation you're doing to your hair, the texture of your hair. It's very, very multifactorial. So I'm, I'm thinking right now, because, you know, a healthy diet is, is I mean, overall is going to improve your body. And sometimes, especially in the African-American community, but the black community, um, you know, we're sometimes told the food that we eat is not the best Uh fried chicken, macaroni and cheese. I mean, it tastes amazing. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, <laughs> typically it's not the best food for us. So is is there a correlation? I mean, we've, we've correlated that diet uh, has a lot to do with um, hair growth and hair loss. But the foods that are common in our community, it, can we say that it is detrimental <laughs> to our to our hair uh, from a long-term perspective, if we're constantly eating, uh, you know, the typical African-American food on a daily basis? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, when we talk about diet, African-American food, any food group that basically has a high glycemic index, meaning it's going to make your blood sugar rise and fall very fast. So again, Mm -hmm. this is the good food. This is the fried food. This is the sweet food. All the good food can definitely be detrimental in terms of being pro-inflammatory. So I always advocate for a well-balanced diet. Um, You want to make sure that you're getting omega-3 fish acids that are anti-inflammatory a good balance of leafy greens to get enough zinc and iron and different things that are going to support a healthy hair follicle and support, you know, a healthy uh, body as well. Right. One thing my mom always told me, uh, and please give the, the scientific truth behind this, but my mom always told me you can tell someone is, uh, taking care of themselves for the most part, you know, uh, if you look at their nails and hair and and typically if they have strong nails and strong hair, that's a good indicator that either they just have good genes or they're taking care of their body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are definitely some um, nutritional deficiencies that can manifest in the nail. So I'm going to 
have to agree with your mom. <laughs> okay, so that's that's good to know. I've been using that as a way when I I'm, I'm dating. I look at guys' nails. I'm like, oh, your nails look a little weak. Uh, what? <laughs> what? Are you drinking enough water? What's what's going on? Um, okay, so I actually want to take a step back, and you know, we were talking about some of the hair conditions. Um, so when a woman or man or even child, uh, you know, is diagnosed with a certain form of alopecia or a certain hair condition, uh, are there ways to reverse those conditions uh, at all? Or are you just, uh, you know, is this just going to be a condition you have for the rest of your life? It depends on the type of, it depends on the type of hair condition. Okay. If there's something that, you are doing in your daily life of contributing definitely can be reversible. Mm -hmm. Um, As with any medical condition, if it's late stage or there's a lot of scarring involved, that's harder to be reversible. But in general, it depends on the type of hair condition and hair loss gets to be a little complicated because there's two broad categories that I would say. There's scarring and Mm non-scarring. Scarring, hair loss, as you can imagine, is when the hair follicles replace with scar tissue. So it becomes a lot more difficult to get that hair back. So, for example, traction alopecia, initially, if not scarring, you have hair follicles that you can recover by intervening early. A lot of education, lifestyle modification, hairstyling modification, but once it gets to be scarring, that's when it becomes hard to be reversible. Mm. Okay. So we, we've talked about how to reverse uh, certain hair conditions, but, you know, how, what are the best ways to prevent these hair conditions? Is it, is it as easy as, you know, maintaining a, a, a good diet and, and keeping your hair care and styling at par or are there any other suggestions you would give uh, to any folks out there listening in? So I think just, you know, being cognizant, being gentle to your hair. I mean, our hair is very thick and sometimes it can be hard to manage, but very, 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 very susceptible to damage. So for example, if you are wearing your hair out and you put heat on your hair, you should just put heat on your hair once a week. It should be on clean, dry hair. Shouldn't be touching up every day. Um, If you're going to shampoo and condition your hair, you want to make sure that you're using moisturizing shampoos. You want to make sure that you're deep conditioning. Um, I think we talked about the pulling. You want to make sure that if you're getting braids or weaves, they're not tight. You're not leaving the hair salon with a headache. You're not leaving the hair salon with red bumps that appear the next day or shortly after it's applied. Um, if you're getting relaxers, maybe you want to space out the frequency of relaxer touch-ups that you're getting. There's no need to re-relax, relax hair. So if you're relaxing, it should just be on your new growth, not additionally on your hair that's already relaxed. So there are different modifications that you can do. And then, of course, diet definitely plays a role. So you want to make sure that you're eating a well-balanced diet as well. Okay. And when someone, you know, is starting to notice that they're losing hair or, um, you know, finding bald spots or um, areas within their head that's lacking hair for the most part, you know, should they go to a dermatologist right away? What are, what are the, the first steps they should take when they start to realize that they may have some hair loss or balding um, on their scalp? Yes, I completely advocate for seeking help from a dermatologist because, you know, nowadays with the era of social media, there's a lot of stuff out there. Try this, try this, try this. So I find that a lot of times a lot of patients are are using Google or Instagram mm-hmm. as a resource to get their treatment plan, mm-hmm. which may not be applicable to them. And it's further delaying evaluation, which meaning which means in turn further delaying treatment. Hmm. Okay. So, no, I you know I have to be frank. I I am a Googler when it comes to uh, finding uh, or diagnosing yeah. my issues. I may have had most people are <laughs> typically with I, I don't do much hair diagnosing, but medical diagnosing. I might have I might have had 
cancer a couple of times. Um, of course. <laughs> I mean, that's of nothing course. to laugh that's about, Dr. but Google Dr. Google <laughs> will have you going down a tunnel of depression. Let me just tell you that right exactly. now. Um, exactly. So if you're listening in, put Google down and just go to the doctor, <laughs> please, because <laughs> exactly. I've been there. It's not a fun time. Okay, so let's do a little bit of uh, exercise here. So if I was to walk into your office, you know, I'm noticing that I'm losing hair and and you, uh, you know, you're you're diagnosing me. What are some steps that you would take in in your office, you know, to kind of start that treatment process? So a lot of my initial hair loss consults are basically me finding out more information. So I want to know from early age, you know, how are you wearing your hair? Have you, are you dyeing your hair? Are you relaxing your hair? How often are you relaxing it? Um, is there a family history of similar hair loss in your mom or dad? What age did that start? How about your siblings? Are they also thinning at this age? Are they thinning later? Um, I want to know about diet. So I want to know if you are vegetarian, vegan, whether you say you have a well-balanced diet or not. I also like to find out about different treatments that you've tried. So that's really important in terms of tailoring your specific needs. So a lot of times I'm listening and asking a lot of questions in the beginning. Um, And then as far as examining there are different things that I'm looking for. So where is your hair loss located? Is there scar tissue that I see? Is there inflammation? Are you also having redness or flakes or are there pus bumps? So basically examining the scalp. Typically I do blood work. So I check to see if there's any vitamin deficiencies. I check to see screen for autoimmune markers. So I do a full workup. Um, and then with a lot of my patients, I actually take a hair sample. So I biopsy. So basically with the biopsy, I take about four millimeters of the scalp and that's sent off to pathology for them to look at under the microscope. to one, determine if it's the degree of scar tissue, if there is scar tissue and further categorize it. Cause sometimes Female pattern hair loss can look like this other scarring condition that's really common to African-American women. So having that diagnosis helps me later on when, for example, if we're doing treatments for six months and you're not responding, are you not responding because we're treating something that I thought we're treating something different? Or are you not responding because you're just not responding and that's how far the hair loss has progressed? So it's very, very involved. A lot of it's listening um, and getting more of a history and then me doing my own detective work and using your history to help guide me. Hmm. Okay. And is this, um, I'm assuming your treatment or your diagnosis uh, process, is, is this something that you do for both men and women or is there a difference between the two genders? I would say mostly women in my practice, personally, yeah. Mm, okay, so we, we know men have the, what is it, the receding, what is the full, is there a scientific name for, for baldness, um, or is it mm-hmm. all just alopecia? No, so for men, the what you're talking about, receding hairline, that's androgenetic alopecia. So male pattern hair loss or male pattern baldness. And so that's interesting because I, I feel like I see more, I see a lot of men um, that have this condition. So I would assume that they would go to a dermatologist to see if there's any way to get their hair back. Or maybe they're okay with the baldness. Maybe they're embracing <laughs> the baldness. Because typically, isn't it a genetic condition or is it also? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely have male alopecia patients, but the large majority of my practice is actually female. Hmm. Okay. And, and, you know, I can't, I can't say I'm not surprised by that. You know, that let's, let's be honest. I'm not surprised by that, but I just wanted to know. Um, Okay. So what really, uh, you know, how I came upon uh, your practice and, and you uh, in in general is I, I came across your Instagram page and I, 
found out about this process, this drug that you uh, utilize within your uh, office called PRP. So what is <laughs> PRP? Is it a drug? Is it the actual process? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> so PRP simply stands for platelet-rich plasma. So it's actually your own plasma that we use, meaning the patient that's going to come in the office. Um, and PRP is exciting because PRP has been used across different medical fields for its wound healing properties for years before we started using it in dermatology. So, for example, orthopedic surgery uses it very often. And it's basically the process by which we use your own growth factors to stimulate hair growth. Okay. So, in dermatology, mm-hmm. oh, what were we going to say? Oh, no, I was. I'm just wondering where's this plasma getting pulled from? Like, where, where? so it's it's your own blood. So basically, when you draw your blood, um, and there are specific tubes. So for example, there's different amounts of blood that you can draw to spin down to get the fraction that you want. Mm-hmm. So when we draw your blood and you centrifuge it after 10 minutes of spinning, you divide the blood into three layers. So there's red blood cells, which are going to be at the bottom. Above the red blood cells, you're going to have platelet-rich plasma. And then that is basically what we are injecting for hair loss. And then on top of that, platelet-poor plasma. The reason that it's called platelet-rich plasma is because it's the part of your blood spun down that has a lot of platelets. And it's hypothesis that basically your platelets, when injected into the scalp, act on the stem cells in your hair follicles mm-hmm. and stimulate the development of new hair follicles. Ooh, I felt like I was um, back in <laughs> college with that 8 a.m. biology class. <laughs> and we yes. were talking about the cells and I just looked at my professor and I was like, oh, okay. But no, I definitely understand <laughs> what you're saying. So, um, you know, that ADM class was beneficial. Uh, okay, so you're using yeah. our own blood in order to um, kind of combat the hair and get our hair to grow back. So is it, how is, where is it getting inserted? Is it like getting inserted into the blood vessels in like underneath the hair follicle? Where is it going? It, it's getting inserted into the dermis where the hair follicle is. Hmm. This is getting interesting. Okay, so what is the, what is the actual full process of the PRP I- injections? Um, so is it just you you take the blood and you mentioned spinning it and then you just insert it into their into the dermis? Is it that simple, or is is there more to it? It, <laughs> so it, it sounds pretty simple. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of background. So basically, you have to have a specific PRP um, centrifuge kit. So it comes with a kit. So it's not like a standard blood draw when they put in those little vials. There's Mm -hmm. specific Mm -hmm. vials that have ingredients in them that activate the platelets when the blood enters the tube. So it's a standard blood draw, meaning that typically the blood is drawn from um, a vein in your arm, usually in the forearm or If sometimes patients are hard sick, we try other areas, but it's drawn for the hair. We draw 22 milliliters, which is a significant amount of blood. So we make sure that all of our patients are well fed, well hydrated before coming into the office because it is a large amount of blood. So then the blood is collected and then it's put in a specific centrifuge that is made for this process that activates the platelets. It spins for about 10 minutes, and then we extract out the platelet-rich, so basically the part of the blood draw that has all the stem cells and growth factors and all the good stuff that's going to activate your hair follicles. And then that is strategically placed in the areas of hair loss and the scalp. Okay. And and typically, how long does it take for you to start seeing, uh, you know, the platelets basically start doing their thing? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I would say about about two treatments. Okay. So everyone does everyone does it differently. So the way that I do it is I do it monthly. Um, typically, I always recommend to my patients that they need four in a row, so four monthly treatments. Mm-hmm. And then after that, every three to six months as needed for maintenance. We do know that if you do have benefit from it, if you stop the injections altogether, you do lose that benefit. So it is something that you mm-hmm. have to continue doing. Okay. And, and um, what were you going to say? I was just going to say, so each and every time that they're coming in um, for like maybe their second, third or fourth uh, injection, do you have to mm-hmm. pull, do you have to get new blood or can you use the original blood that you uh, took the first time? New blood. Okay. New blood. Yeah. So each time it requires a blood draw. Okay. Okay. And, and so I'm wondering, are there any side effects to the PRP injections? So the great news about the PRP, it's your own blood. So mm-hmm. basically, if what we took out of you is being injected directly back in. Um, however, with that said, with any procedure, there's always a risk of pain. There's always a risk of infection. And there's always a risk of bleeding. Um, I would say the most common side effect in my practice is headache. Mm-hmm. Because as you can imagine, putting volume in such a tight space can cause a little bit of a headache sensation. But the headache is easily managed with Tylenol. But essentially, very, very well-tolerated procedure. Very, very safe. Okay. Somewhat of a tangent, but what what comes to mind, although I'm sure this is not taking place in, in your practice at all, but what comes to mind is, I don't know if you if you knew knew about this that took place, but there was a... A beauty spa, I think, in Mexico. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I don't even have to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the <Yes>. vampire facials. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's the same blood extraction process, but like I was saying, how sounds as simple as a standard blood draw and you spin in a centrifuge, but you actually need a approved kit that is designed specifically for this because if you are going to a med spa and you don't know how they're spinning the blood, what system they're doing, you can do anything. There definitely can be cross-contamination. Right. And very, very important. Yeah. And for everyone who's listening in, um, so there was there's a beauty spa. I don't know the name of the spa, but you can definitely Google this. There was a beauty spa in Mexico that was giving vampire facials. So similar to the uh, idea of utilizing your own blood, uh, but in this case to give yourself a facial, there were some patients from the spa that shared, I believe that they got HIV from the vampire facials, but they didn't have HIV to start with. So there was a lot of questions on whose blood was on their right. their face. And, and going to your point, um, yeah, you're right. It's I, I mean, I don't know if there was an official licensed dermatologist there conducting the facials, but yeah, so... You know, in, in that case, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, you definitely need to, need to do some background research on who is doing this and are they licensed to do this this form of work? Exactly. Because, I mean, once you're dealing with blood, there's a lot of communicable diseases that can be spread and transferred. So it's very, very, very important to make sure that the system that they're using has a protocol in place that is to prevent that right and i mean i don't know i don't know if i want to go and get a vampire facial you know i think i'll take (laughs) i'll take that uh i'll I'll hear i'll read about that i'll watch it i'm okay with not experiencing it but 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 back to the prp um injections in the process so it's good to hear that there aren't any uh, critical side effects, uh, but how how common are PRP injections, at least in, in your office? It's pretty common. I mean, to be honest with you, the limiting factor is cost. If it was free, 100, 100% of my patients would be doing PRP. Mm-hmm. Are the so com- it's very, mm-hmm. very common. Um, I practice in LA, so a lot of patients are into the natural option. So mm-hmm. PRP is the most natural treatment option you could possibly get. Um, so it's very, very common. Okay. So so that's good to hear that. that it, it. I mean, it makes sense. It's your own blood. So, I mean, I don't know how more natural you can get. But 
Okay, exactly. so that that makes sense. So now I'm wondering, is, is PRP, especially when you have hair loss, is PRP the last result that you would suggest to a patient or is it the first result? Uh, what? How does that work? So very, very good question. So for me, not the last result at all. For me, hair transplant is the last result. Mm, okay. So I always, when I talk about treatment plan, PRP is always introduced. I will say that um, a lot of the studies and evidence supporting the use of PRP is in that female pattern or male pattern category of hair loss. So the a lot of the studies haven't been done in the scarring type of hair loss. So for my patients with scarring type of hair loss, it's not my first line. I always present it as an option. However, there's not enough data to support good results for me to push it. So if that's something that becomes, you know, later on down the line, if they're not responding to the initial conventional therapy and basically they're willing to pay out of pocket for something that might not be therapeutic, but mm-hmm. might be therapeutic. We don't really know. I see. Okay. So it, it sounds like with the PRP um, injections, it's something that you, you favor and want to share with your, with your clients but, um, or your patients, but it, it is a, a subjective um, process. It, it depends on the situation. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. from your perspective um, and your experience, of course, who is the perfect candidate for PRP injections? Perfect candidate would be early stage female pattern thinning, male pattern thinning, or early traction alopecia. Okay. And and one thing I'm wondering with the PRP injections, is this something that is only for um, hair loss on your scalp? Or is, is this something like, for instance, if a man wanted to you know, stimulate hair growth for his beard. Could he get a PRP injection? A hundred percent. Oh, yeah. wow. I have some friends yeah. that may want to hear about that. <laughs> I have a couple of male friends that are trying to grow the beard and they don't know what yeah. to do. Okay. So men, we know it is beard gang 2019 and forever. So... Yeah. You know, hit up Dr. Obioha and get your PRP injection. Yes, definitely. That is okay. That's good to hear. And and from, uh, you know, I, I was scrolling through your Instagram page once I found the PRP injections. I'm just looking at, oh, man, all this stuff is cool. And so I noticed that you actually have gotten the PRP injections as well, correct? Yes, many times. So how how do you like it? I'm sure you love it, but, you know, can you share your experience with the PRP injections? Yeah, so personally, I have a long history of leave wearing um, until I entered the field of dermatology and kind of saw what it can do and what it did do to me personally. So when I started in practice, I have not had any added hair, any leaves for the past two years. And I did, for me, I did five sessions of PRP a month apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also made sure that I wasn't having any pulling on my scalp. And I had really good results personally. Um, and then now I do it probably every five months for maintenance. So my experience has been great. But it's not foolproof. It's not the holy grail. It's great. It's been a great addition. But I do have patients that do PRP and don't respond. I do have patients Mm. that do PRP and respond beautifully. So it definitely varies. Okay. And and, and no, that's, you know, thank you for pointing that out as well. Um, So lastly, you know, can you just share with the audience some tips on, on one, how to find and locate a dermatologist in their area, and then to how to take care of their hair at home. Um, you know, I think that's just as important as as finding someone who can help them take care of their hair as well. So kind of a double question mm-hmm. there. <laughs> okay, so for locating a dermatologist, um, so as board-certified dermatologists, we're part of an academy. So there's an American Academy of Dermatology that has a website. And so the website is AA. D as in dog.org. 
-hmm. And if you go to the right-hand corner, you can click public and patient, and then you can click find a dermatologist. And it's great because you can search by state. You can search by practice focus. So you can search skin of color. You can search hair loss and basically put your zip code in, and then it'll populate a list. So that's a great, great, great resource. And then in terms of just tips, I mean, everything that I said before, but my mm -hmm. most important tip is just, you know, be gentle to your hair. I, I feel like our hair goes through a lot to conform to, you know, society's norms. And so just be gentle to your hair. Take breaks if you're braiding it or if you're weaving it, making sure, make sure that you're conditioning it and just be gentle. I couldn't agree more. You know, thank you, Dr. Obioha, for coming on and, and speaking to us just about hair care and PRP and just, you know, how to just embrace and, and make sure our hair is healthy uh, from a scientific perspective. Um, lastly, can you just share how everyone can reach you on social media? Do you have your own website? Um, share us the deets. Yeah, so you guys should check out my Instagram page. It's at Dr. Obioha. Um, it's O B as in boy, I O H A. I don't have a website, but you can always um, message me. I always respond. It might not be immediate, but I try to get to my messages and kind of comb through them every couple of weeks. And I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. Perfect. Well, thank you again for coming on onto the Naturally Lit Podcast. Um, and thank you to everyone who's listening in. Peace and have a good one. Thank you for having me.